Last week in Acts chapter 2, we saw how we have this new reality in the church, in this, in this end times people, where the believers were together. They were together. And they had all things in common. And they were even selling their property and possessions and dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. And so we saw that if Moses could say of, of Old Covenant Israel, he could say, there will be future or there is to be no needy person among you. Now Luke can say of this end times people in Acts, for there was not a needy person among them. So you, you, all the Greek utopian ideals and even the Jewish moral ideal is fulfilled in this, the church. Now, to what are we to attribute this new reality, this new thing that's not ever existed prior to this day of Pentecost? We attribute it on the one hand, certainly, to the Spirit poured out. There's the power for it. There's the enabling. And the resulting togetherness of Messiah's people, as the, as the people were together, that naturally expressed itself in care and love for one another. But that wouldn't be the whole story, okay? And so we're going to do something a little different today. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples before he ascended back into heaven. He said to them in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Remember, uh, Jesus is our eschatological lawgiver, okay? So Jesus now tells them, I commanded you a lot. Now you go on and teach the nations to keep what I commanded you. So there were a lot of commands that Jesus gave to the disciples as our new lawgiver. But it is Luke, Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, who emphasizes the commands of Jesus regarding wealth and regarding possessions. You might remember from when we were in Acts chapter 1 that we saw that it is Luke, also more than any of the other gospel writers, who emphasizes the necessity of prayer for the coming of the kingdom. So when we were looking at Acts 1 and the disciples all with one accord were praying, we looked at Luke and how Luke has so many themes of prayer in his gospel that Matthew and Mark don't have, and and neither does John. John is, is, is in a different bit of a category. And so in the same way, the theme of wealth, the theme of possessions, as these things relate to life in Messiah's kingdom. Okay, because the, the kingdom comes, that changes everything. That just changes everything. So now we have to, in a sense, reevaluate our perspective on wealth and possessions in the light of the coming of the kingdom. When, and so this is a major theme in Luke's gospel, again, more so than Matthew and Mark. When Luke, therefore, when he describes how all those who had believed they were together, they had all things, all stuff in common, and how they began selling their property and possessions and dividing them up with anyone as they might have need. When he writes that, Luke, his first volume, is still somewhat hot off the presses, as it were, right? I mean, he, he remembers what he wrote. This is volume two. We're supposed to read it having read volume one. And so he sees in the people's actions, he sees their obedience. This isn't just some like ultra-spiritual amazing moment. This is like just the people saying, okay, we need to obey. It's their obedience to what Jesus had commanded. Luke sees these, these citizens of the kingdom living out now in practice the teachings of Jesus, their king, who is now seated at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. So in your, when you're citizens of the king and his kingdom, you do what the king tells you. 
That's what they're doing. That's all they're doing. This is, in a sense, not that special. Now, it is incredibly special. But in that sense, it's just doing what the king said. So this morning, we're going to go back to Luke's first volume, his gospel. And we're going to see exactly what all those commands and all those teachings of Jesus were regarding wealth and possessions. These commands that the people are now living out in practice. We're going to start with Luke chapter 18. And we read in this chapter about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and questions him. And I just want to say, before we come to this, if we could just let our guard down, if we could just realize, again, let's start out with the reality that we live in a world that's more materialistic, as, at least as materialistic, as life has ever been, right? Um, let's recognize that we all need, need to be convicted in this area. And I'm not going to spell out the ways and what it actually looks like, because that's, in a sense, I think that's for you to do. But what we need to do is hear the teaching of Jesus clearly and let it penetrate to, to our hearts and our minds. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he questions him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, this is something of a topical message. I don't get to exposit these texts fully, although I had to do a lot of the work for it this week. But there's so much that we could camp out on in this passage. Um, He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he means by that, what shall I do to be assured of entrance into Messiah's kingdom. I'm not sure that he was necessarily saying, what shall I do to earn and merit eternal life? Uh, Sometimes we just paint people in worse pictures than they, they need to be. He's just saying, what should I do to be assured that I have eternal life? And we know that Jesus, this was a sincere man. He was very sincere. And we know from Mark that Jesus felt a love for him. And when Jesus invited him to come and follow him, Jesus' call was not just a command. It was like, come and follow me. He felt a love for this man. Come, follow me. So let's just keep some of that flavor, as it were, in mind here. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? And Jesus isn't like berating him, getting on his case. Again, look how we read the Bible. We just, we got Jesus in this light sometimes. Jesus is asking him a probing question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, so very gently, but very probingly, Jesus is questioning this man's ideas of goodness. Jesus is not denying that he is truly good. Instead, he's challenging the ruler's ideas about what goodness is, and especially about his own goodness. So then he continues, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And this is where we all get mad at the guy, right? Because he's so arrogant, because he's saying, I've done all these things from my youth. Well, in, in one sense, he had. He hadn't killed anyone. He had sought to honor his parents. He, 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 he did not bear false witness in court against anyone and send them to their death or something like that. So he had done all these things, but he wasn't necessarily completely arrogant because why is he at Jesus? He still doesn't have assurance of eternal life. And so he's coming saying, what do I do to have this assurance? I don't have this assurance. We, we can sympathize with this man. He was, he was searching. He was seeking for something. And when Jesus heard this, Mark says here, he felt a love for him. When he heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What do we do with that? Do we now are we now upset with Jesus? Because that seems a bit harsh. Why is this a bit of a double standard? Does he have to do this? And why doesn't everyone else have to do this? Well, whenever you feel like that. That's, that's just the invitation to begin examining your heart. And, and, I, and I identify with you 
But then that's my invitation to begin examining my heart. Okay, so when you have responses to the word of God that are like that, turn, turn to, not turn inward in a bad way, but in the good way. So let me just start with, with this. Was Jesus calling the rich young ruler to become a pauper? who must live now and for the rest of his life completely off the generosity of others? And almost assuredly, the answer is no. Let's just start out with what we'll see as we move on, that wealth and possessions in themselves are not the problem, right? But rather our heart's attachment to wealth and possessions. Now, that really doesn't let us off the hook. In fact, some people have found it easier. They've hoped for this easier pathway of just divesting themselves of all wealth and all possessions and being monks and going out and living in the desert, right? Because then they're going to be safe. And in fact, that's, that, that's not going to accomplish it. If only, that was that, if only it was that easy, right? But it's not. That heart attachment, the heart we carry with us, and it's our hearts that are our problems. It's our heart's attachment to wealth and possessions, as this is often revealed specifically. How do we see our heart's attachment? We see it in the collecting, or in your handout, the storing up of wealth and possessions. Now, we can all, all of us can be like, okay, now I've got to qualify. What is, what is collecting? What is storing up? How do I know when I'm doing it? I'm not going to tell you that. I can't. This is where we need the Spirit, and we just need to be honest and, and, and pray and ask God to show, to show us where we are, where our hearts are. There were many, though, who followed Jesus who must have had their own independent means of support. Remember, there were 70 disciples he sent out two by two. Many of those disciples must have had some independent means of support. We know that there were women following Jesus. They were Jesus' disciples too. And they provided for the twelve out of their private means. So they didn't sell all their everything and become paupers, right? Most likely, Jesus was calling this man to sell all, yes, all, those extra possessions that he had been collecting and storing up. This is where we have to be careful about context, reading the Bible in context. Um, now, it didn't make it any easier for the rich man, as we're about to see. But when Jesus says, uh, sell all that you possess, that doesn't mean sell the clothes on his, on his, off his back. Right? So all must be limited in some way. How do we limit it? Well, the picture is this is a rich man who is, we know, attached to his possessions. What does that tell us he's been doing? He's been collecting. He's been probably building barns and storing them up. And now I got more. Let's build another barn and store that up. And Jesus says, sell it all. Sell all that stuff you've been collecting and storing up and come and follow me. Sell it all and keep only what is needed for your daily bread. I could even guess, though, though this man might be a unique case, it's possible that it was all right for him to keep his daily bread and keep somewhat to continue being generous to the poor or maybe to support the kingdom work. I don't know. But he had a lot of stuff he had to get rid of, a, rid of because it was a millstone around his neck. Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men and who knows your heart better than you know your own heart, right? Knows my heart better than I know mine. He knows exactly what it is that's keeping this man from the kingdom and from an assurance of eternal life. Simple. It was his love for his stuff. That's what it was. It was his heart's attachment to his possessions. That word possess. I'm not... As we know from last week, I'm not against private property. That's biblical. But that word possess has a scary connotation to it. Especially when it comes to us as kingdom citizens. What is it that we possess ultimately? So it was out of his love and his compassion for this man 
that Jesus called him to sell all that he possessed, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow him. Now, here's my next question for you. Could this ruler, what is Jesus saying? Could this ruler have had eternal life without literally selling all his possessions? Could he have? And without literally leaving his house to travel with Jesus, could he have had eternal life without doing those things? Technically, the answer is yes. Because obviously, what matters is the heart and not the possessions themselves. It wasn't the possessions themselves keeping him from the kingdom. And there were many others who did have eternal life who were not traveling around with Jesus, following him wherever he went. They had eternal life. Why can't he have eternal life without, without traveling around and following Jesus? Well, here's what's going on, and this is really important, these next two blanks that you have. He could have had eternal life, yes, but once Jesus issues this call which is a gracious call. Now, it is only obedience to this call that did not exist on this man beforehand. It's not like Jesus was saying, you should have known before this that you ought to sell everything you have. It wasn't just that he had so much. It was that he was collecting, storing, hoarding, and his heart was there. So now, Jesus gives him this call. And now it is only obedience to this call that can give the true assurance of eternal life. Indeed, it was in your handout, in order that this man might have the assurance that he longed for. Jesus says, you, you, you long for the assurance of eternal life. And Jesus, in his grace, says, I've, I've got just the answer for you. Just go sell everything that you have and come. Come and follow me. He gave him this special call specially crafted for this man to give him the very thing that he was looking for. The question then is this. Do we hear in Jesus' words, law, or do we hear gospel? How many of us have heard law when Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess? Give to the poor and come follow me. If Jesus was walking this earth today in his state of humiliation, and he came to you today and he gave you the same call, how fast would you obey? It's hard maybe to know for sure until we're confronted with it. Would you gladly sell everything you possessed, give all the proceeds to the poor, and follow him on the road, on the road, knowing this, that he has nowhere to call home? He has nowhere to call home. And he daily walks on the path of suffering and rejection by men. How fast would you sell all your stuff? Jesus' call to this rich young ruler was full of love and mercy and compassion. Yes, there was law in it. What was the law? What was the commandment? You shall not covet. There was the commandment not to be ruled by greed and the love of stuff. That law is assumed, yes, it's there, but, but the call of Jesus in itself was not law. It was not do this in order to earn and merit eternal life. It's not what he was saying. And that's actually how it's preached sometimes, because some people say Jesus was just trying to show him how hopeless his case was, so that he would turn you know, in, to the mercy of God. No, Jesus wasn't doing that. He was giving him an actual way. Do this. But that was gospel. It was an invitation to enter the kingdom of God in your handout. By what? By faith. Choosing to exchange the earthly riches where moth and rust destroy for the true and lasting riches of heaven. Let's just be real about this. Right? That's what Jesus was calling him to. How is that not gospel? How is that not full of grace? And it's only when we understand that gospel reality that we can rightly grieve 
over what happens next. But when the ruler heard these things, he became very sad. Again, this is a sincere guy. Jesus felt a love for him. He was earnestly wanting to have an assurance of eternal life. And now he's genuinely sad. For he was extremely rich. The ruler was sad because he hoped to gain the assurance of eternal life. life, But now he couldn't have that assurance. Because what he loved more than treasure in heaven was treasure on earth. He did not have faith to see in Jesus' call to him the riches of God's gospel grace. Instead, he saw in Jesus' call to him an unattainable duty and law. So we read in verses 24 to 27. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's sobering right there. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. What we have illustrated in the case of the rich young ruler, it's illustrated there in his story. But it's explained in Luke chapter 16. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And there are many who, by the lives that they live, would like to say to Jesus, Yes, I can serve both God and wealth. And Jesus says to them, No, you cannot. You cannot. Now, we have, we have this reality that as Christians, we're still sinners, right? And so we still have the constant draw uh, of, of, of attachment, heart's attachment to possessions. So there's that reality. But Jesus also um, paints this picture of you're either this or you're that, and there's no in the middle. The ultimate allegiance of your heart is given either to God or to your wealth and possessions. You cannot serve both. So when he says that we will either hate the one or love the other, he's not saying, he's not saying make sure that you love the one more than the other. See, that's where we like to go. Love it more than the other. And so we start weighing it. I, I love it this much and then I love this this much and, I, and I've got it. No, Jesus says, hate. Hate. Love. When he says this, he's referring to the, and and you might circle, underline these two words, absolute and wholehearted. Absolute and wholehearted rejection of the one as master. As master. And a correspondingly absolute and wholehearted submission to the other. Brothers and sisters, this doesn't make it easy. This isn't like, oh good, I can keep all my stuff. We missed the point then. It's a matter of the heart. We can ask ourselves the question then, do I, and I'll ask myself at this moment, so you join me in asking yourself, do I hate Do I despise wealth as my master in direct proportion to my love and devotion to God? While Matthew includes this teaching of Jesus about the impossibility, I said Luke emphasizes more than the other gospel writers. So far what we've seen is in Matthew too, and some of it's in in Mark. Um, But the rest of most of this, most of the rest of this, is going to be just in Luke. And in fact, Luke is the only one who includes this, this unique context around the verse we just looked at. No man shall conserve two masters. So after telling the parable of the unrighteous steward, which is only in Luke, Jesus concludes, only in Luke. All right. I say to you, make friends for yourselves with the wealth of unrighteousness. 
So that when it fails, they will take you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, and we're all using it every day, right? All the time. Who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And then again, Luke is the only one who includes what came before and now what comes after. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Their heart love. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Isn't it, isn't it a scary thing to know that our hearts can love the very thing that's detestable to God? As one commentator puts it, one must use wealth in order to serve God, not God in order to serve a lust for wealth. What does Paul say? That many think that godliness is a means of material gain. And it is a means of gain when it's accompanied by contentment. What should we be content with? Food and clothing. So how do we serve God as our master with our wealth? How do we demonstrate our love and devotion to God with our wealth? Now, we could say a lot of things here. Certainly one way is by providing for your family. That's one way we serve God. And so that's, that's a beautiful thing. When we, when we go to the doctor's office and we pay for the, the medical bill, well, we do that as an act of worship because we're using the wealth God's given us to do what we need to do and to care for family. And, and I don't think I always get that. I gripe and complain about having to write that check or put that on there, whatever, you know, pay that bill. So seeing God provided wealth to use it to his glory. And that's part of the reason for it. By using our wealth, but in particular here, by using our wealth, Jesus says, to make friends for ourselves who will receive us into the eternal dwellings after that wealth has failed. By seeing our unrighteous wealth in your handout always as a means, not to, and a means to gaining the true riches. So how do you look at your money? It's a means that you have to gain true riches. That's what your money is. It's only Luke who tells us about these words that Jesus spoke to a man who invited him to a dinner. This is only in Luke, and it illustrates, again, what we just read. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for it will be repaid to you at the resurrection of the righteous. There's the true riches. There's the use of unrighteous wealth to gain the true riches of heaven. Remember, Jesus said it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom. It's in connection with that that we read Luke chapter 6. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, Jesus began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. This is a verse, again, that the church today takes way out of context. 
So let's just seek to be faithful to the word here. The kingdom of God belongs to who? To those who are poor. To those who are hungry. To those who cry. These are the ones who, when the kingdom comes, will be satisfied and full of joy and laughter. Question. Do all who are poor and hungry and crying automatically have a share in the kingdom? Just because you're poor, do you have an automatic ticket into the kingdom? Notice from the context, you know, we context, context, context. Not just the context of the immediate, but the whole Bible. People don't read the Bible in context. What does it say here? Why are these people who are poor, why are they poor and hungry and crying? Why are they poor? It is because they are hated, excluded, insulted, and scorned by men. Why? For the sake of Jesus. The assumption is that these poor are poor precisely because of their faith in Jesus and their obedience to his law. This explains why their material lack now is the sign of the greatness of the reward in heaven. Because why are they materially lacking? Because they're so faithful to Jesus and to his laws. And so their poverty, which is the result of that, becomes the sign of the true riches that are even then stored up in heaven for them. This also explains why the economically poor came to be synonymous in the Bible with the poor in spirit. Certainly not every poor person is poor in spirit. In fact, there's multitudes of poor people in America who are not poor in spirit. But in the Bible, the economically poor came to be synonymous with the poor in spirit. This is why those who lack bread came to be synonymous in the Bible with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke says, blessed are those who hunger, who are hungry. He's talking about physical hungry, right? But that is a symbol and a sign for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have to remember when we talk about the poor in America or anywhere in the world, those who are hungry multitudes of hungry people are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about them. That doesn't mean that we just can, can discount them entirely. It means, though, that we can't apply all these scriptures in the same way to those poor. And this is what the church has done. It's so frustrating. It is not just frustrating... It's just leading to, it's leading to division in the church. It's leading to fall, all sorts of false teaching about the true gospel and about what the church ought to be preaching, about what the church ought to be doing. This is where we see that we need to read the Bible in context. In other words, the poor came to be a descriptive term for all the persecuted righteous, even for those who are economically wealthy. This is why David, who was a king and quite well off, could pray as one against whom the wicked plotted. He could say, I am needy and poor. The Lord will take care of me. You are my helper and my protector. Oh my God, do not delay. Incline your ear, O Lord, and listen to me, said King David, who was quite wealthy, because I am needy and poor. The poor, then, are those who, even if they have wealth, have in your handout renounced wealth as the source of their true security and happiness. I mean, that that word renounced is the key word. Have you renounced it? Have I renounced it? And that's the thing that I began to think. I need to renounce wealth as the source of my true security and happiness. The poor in Scripture is a theological category. It's not a socioeconomic category purely, as people would make it out to be. It's a theological category 
for all who are truly righteous and who live by faith in Jesus alone. The economically poor then, who are not righteous, are not truly poor. Because they are not truly poor in spirit. If the poor in scripture are all who are truly righteous and all who live by faith alone, then who are the rich? You see where we're going here, right? And this is where, again, in, in the... I, I'm, I'm not trying to be, um, be on a hobby horse here. It's just that this is the hobby horse of our age. And so this is really helpful for us, I believe, to recognize these things where, where the rich, we quote verses like this to show that the rich are bad. But in the Bible, the rich is a theological category, not just a socioeconomic category. And this is where we've missed the boat entirely and drowned in the ocean. So in Luke chapter 6, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. Jesus' point is not that being rich automatically disqualifies you from entering the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of rich people who are going to get in and a lot of poor people who are not when it comes to just socioeconomic categories. The picture here is of those who look to their riches, to their wealth, to their possessions for security and happiness in the present. And it's only Jesus who can judge the heart there. We might, we might see signs of it. We might be able to confront and, and challenge people. But only Jesus knows the heart. And these people are therefore, in your handout, unable to part with their riches so that the righteous poor might receive them into the eternal dwellings. See, it's, the, it's only the righteous poor who can receive us into the eternal dwellings. Now, that's not to say you can't give to someone who's not righteous. It's just to put this in its proper context. The rich, then, is a theological category in Scripture for all who cling to their wealth at the expense of the righteous poor and who are therefore, by default, the oppressors. There are oppressors in Scripture. There are true oppressors. The oppressors of those who live by faith. The rich who do not live by faith become the oppressors of the poor who do live by faith. Not surprisingly, it is Luke, alone among the evangelists, only Luke. When I say evangelist, I mean gospel writer, who includes Jesus' account of the rich man and Lazarus. Only in Luke do we find the rich man and Lazarus. Now, there was a rich man, an automatically theological category, the rich man is the man who trusts in his possessions. Not the one who has possessions, but the one who trusts in them. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. But a poor man, theological categories. This is not just the man who doesn't have possessions, though he doesn't. This is the man who has faith in, in God and his promises. His name was Lazarus. He was laid at the rich man's gate, covered with sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. He was hungry. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man, the man who lived by faith, died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, the man who trusted in his possessions and found his happiness and security in them, died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. He still sees Lazarus the same as he saw him in life. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life 
you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. It's Luke, alone among the evangelists. He's the only gospel writer who includes the Song of Mary, in which Mary exalts. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. We must reclaim these scriptures from our, from our heresy-promoting church today. We must reclaim them, not simply so that we can reject the heresies that are being taught in the church, but so that we can be truly convicted as we ought to be convicted with the heart matter of our love and attachments. The only people who will inherit eternal life in Messiah's kingdom are the poor. As in the truly poor in spirit who live by faith. While on the other hand, all the rich, as in the self-sufficient whose source of security and happiness is their wealth and possessions, all the rich will suffer the eternal torments of hell. It is in this light then that we understand now the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Only in Luke, by the way, not anywhere else. And then in Luke chapter 7, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard, Jesus said. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So there were times when Jesus would use the same parable on different occasions, tailoring it for different purposes and different audiences. So if you read a parable in Matthew and then you read it in Luke and it's like the same but different, it's because Jesus recycled his material sometimes, as it were, and, but, but used it in a different context. So in Matthew's account of the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus describes how the people whom the king invited to the wedding feast, they, none of, they'd paid no attention. And they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. And the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed all those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he sent his servants out into the main highways to call as many as they found there to the wedding feast. When we come to Luke and his unique emphasis, it's obvious what's going on here. It's like totally different, but the same basic idea of the parable. In Luke, we have this version. A man was giving a big dinner, no longer is it a wedding feast, although it could be, but he doesn't specify that. And he invited many, and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. I ask you, consider me excused. Uh, Look how polite they are here, right? In Matthew, there's no politeness. They paid no attention and went their way, and the rest seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged, and that's how it goes. Here, no. He invites them to the dinner, and they're all very polite. Please consider me excused. I need to go look at this piece of land I bought. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. I I ask you, consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And when the slave came back, he reported these things to his master. Then the head of the household became, very, became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city. And now Luke is the only one who emphasizes this. And bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. In other words, theological category. Those who are not slaves to their possessions. 
that's who they are. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Now many crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You just got to let this stuff sink in sometimes. There are not two levels of kingdom membership. The first level being those who do not give up all their own possessions. They're in, but they don't do that. And the second level for the elite Christians being those who do give up all their possessions. What does Jesus say? None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Whatever that means, it's true. And we have to wrestle with it. To whatever extent, you know, where we have the two levels of kingdom membership, we see in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church with those who take the vow of poverty. Not everyone has to take the vow of poverty, but some do. Or, or some choose to. Um, and I would just say that to whatever extent the concept of a vow of poverty may be biblical, then we have to recognize that this vow of poverty is required equally of all true Christians. It is required of all true Christians to whatever extent it's biblical. But what is this poverty that's required of us? It is a poverty of spirit. And again, does that just kind of make you like, oh, yes, I can keep all my stuff. Right? Well, we missed the point, haven't we? It's a poverty of spirit which is free from all attachment to wealth and possessions. It is foolish and irresponsible to give so much away that we ourselves become impoverished and dependent upon others. That doesn't make any sense. Why do I give everything away so that then you have to give to me so I can eat and drink? Right? It's foolish and irresponsible to give so much away that in my old age, I have nothing left to sustain me. Now, we know not all can have the means to, give, to put away for that time. But if I am able to, then it's, it's foolish to give it all away so I've, when I get old, I've got nothing left to sustain me. And then now, by choice, I end up having to depend upon others rather than being in a position to give to the poor. Hey, when I'm, when I'm 70 or 80, if I can, I should still be making friends for myself who will be welcoming me into the eternal dwellings. We should remember, only a wealthy centurion would have been in a position to build the Jews their synagogue at Capernaum. And only Luke tells us about that wealthy centurion who built the synagogue. Only a wealthy good Samaritan would have been in a position to take such good care of the man who was beaten by robbers. Only Luke tells us about that wealthy Samaritan. Only wealthy women could have provided for Jesus and the twelve disciples out of their own private means. And only Luke makes that explicit. Only a wealthy man can give a luncheon or a dinner and invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind who don't have the means to repay him. And that's only in Luke. Only a man whom God has blessed with riches could have provided such an honorable burial for Jesus. Now see, if all these people had sold all that they had and become poor, none of them could have ever done these things. Couldn't have provided for that man who was beaten up by the robbers. Couldn't have built that synagogue for the Jews. But what, what do their actions show about their attitude towards their wealth? Their wealth was simply a means to make friends in the heavens who would welcome them into the eternal dwellings. That's how they viewed it. Only a wealthy woman 
would have had a house large enough for the church to gather there for prayer, and only a wealthy man like Cornelius would be in a position to provide so abundantly for the poor. Not only do we need to hear Jesus' words about giving up all our own possessions in the context of example like that, but in the context of Jesus' words to Zacchaeus. And guess where is the only place we learn about Zacchaeus? It's just in Luke, only in Luke. He recounts the story of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and rich. And when you come to Luke and you read about someone who's rich, our theological classes go on immediately. And Luke tells us about how Zacchaeus received Jesus into his house and how he said to Jesus, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, That's not good enough. It has to be all. No, Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Question. Question here is this. Why does Jesus use such absolute language when, when we all just have to spend all our time immediately qualifying it all? Is that really what we should spend our time doing? You know, why does he use absolute language like, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions if that's not literally what we're all required to do? The answer is simple. The absolute language represents symbolically the Now, does anyone know what that blank is? I know you don't want to say it out loud because it might not be it. So I'll just tell you, but I'm hoping you might know it. It's absolute. It represents symbolically the absolute. Heart renunciation of all our wealth and possessions as the source of our security and happiness. The absolute language represents symbolically the absoluteness of that faith by which we are to live. And our pursuit, our storing up, key word, only, of heavenly treasure. Jesus' absolute language then is not hyperbole. And I understand, I don't want to get too much on their case, because I, I, I get what they're saying, but I don't think we should refer to his language as hyperbole. Even when Jesus said, gouge out your eye, I don't see that as hyperbole. It must be understood precisely in terms of its true absoluteness. It's in this light, then, that we are to hear Jesus' commendation of the poor widow in Luke 21. Truly I say to you, as he watched all of them put their money into the offering box, into the treasury, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all, the rich, put in their gifts out of their abundance. But she, out of what she lacked, put in all that she had for living. Now, what do we say right away? Oh, look. She gave it all up. A poor widow. She put it all she had for living, and she became a pauper. Well, no. No. We, we should certainly, first of all, probably assume she did not have children to feed. And that even if she did, she went home to earn again what was necessary for her living. Obviously, she would not have foolishly given away all her money, only to have to go immediately beg money from others. Right? So, anyone who does that is out of God's will. But what this widow did do was give sacrificially. The point is that she gave sacrificially while the rich didn't. And thus demonstrating in your handout the absoluteness of her devotion to God over money and thus giving more in God's eyes than all the combined offerings of the rich. (laughs) Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us about the day when someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We read only in Luke. Then Jesus said, Watch out and be on your guard. 
against every form of greed, which implies that it takes many forms. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told him a parable found only in Luke, saying, The land of a rich man, theological lens, rich man, we know who he is, was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. Now he knew he was going to die someday, right? One day. But he had envisioned it would be when he got old. On the contrary, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's the thing about us as human beings. As human beings, right? Because the birds, they're not covetousness with possessions. You know, None of the animals are hoarding except for pack rats, I guess. but. That's all right. They're not, their hearts are not attached to anything. Right. So here we are as humans, and we have this unique, innate ability now to become so invested in our stuff that we begin to think and to live practically as if my life, as if I myself consisted of my possessions. As if my money and my things were extensions of me. And so in this case, we have not only God's rebuke to the rich man, you fool, this very night. I mean, that's the, that's the thing, this very night. And he didn't know it. Your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you prepared But we also have the reminder of the Apostle Paul. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. What is your life? Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Indeed, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When Jesus says, coming back now, we're beginning to come back to where we started. When Jesus says, so is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Or when he says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not sell all that he, who does not give up all his own possessions. We might hear in those words predominantly law. We hear the prohibition, thou shalt not covet. You should not be greedy and materialistic. We hear the the law. It is there. But in this next passage, which I'm so excited to end with, which is again, has a section that's unique only to Luke, we hear only gospel. Or maybe we could say, we hear only gospel law. Jesus said, and do not seek what you will eat, and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. And here's the part unique to Luke. Do not fear, little flock. For your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it as mercy. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Where no thief comes near nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, I was thinking what word to emphasize for your blank. And I was going to do treasure, but then I think it should be where. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? 
Could we all say today with King David, I am poor and needy. Are we all actively, actively rejecting and renouncing utterly all of our possessions as the source of our security and happiness? Are we joyfully making for ourselves, with the unrighteous wealth, money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven? Because that's real, brothers and sisters. That's real. It's the real deal, right? Coming back now to Acts, to uh, Luke's volume 2. When Luke describes how all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and how they began selling their property and possessions, and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need, what's he doing? He's only describing that which is the very essence of life in the kingdom. They were selling their possessions and giving the proceeds as mercy. Why? Because they knew that their father was well pleased to give them the kingdom. Because the kingdom with its true riches was ultimately the only thing they were seeking. Woe to the rich, for they are receiving their comfort now in full. But blessed are the poor. And I would like to just point to all of you. Blessed are the poor, because you are the poor. For yours is the kingdom, is the kingdom of God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, our, our, our hearts wrestle. We are prone to idolatry. We understand that the reason for all of this emphasis of our Lord Jesus on wealth and possessions is because of the incredible, incredible Danger that the love of wealth and possessions poses to our souls. So we pray, Lord, first of all, confessing that we have each one of us sinned in this area. We pray, Lord, that you reveal to us our heart's attachments, that you wean us tear us away, that that it would even be the gouging out of eyes and the cutting off of hands. We also thank you, Lord, that you are a God abounding in mercy and compassion and forgiveness. We thank you that we who have come to Christ and who who have looked only to Jesus for our security and happiness that we have in him forgiveness, full and free. And that we hear now in Jesus' words, not just law as in commands, bare commands, but, but gospel law, but gospel promise, that we do not fear, because we know that our Father is well pleased to give us the kingdom. Let us value, then, the treasures that there are to be stored up in heaven. Teach us how to use, and even in the, even the ways that we already use our money, but maybe with the wrong attitude, it's the right way to use, but with the wrong spirit or the wrong perspective. Help us, help us to always be using our money for the storing up of treasure that is lasts forever. Lord, I pray that we would see this reality above all in the body of Christ, whether in this local body or, or throughout the world. And again, we, we thank you, Lord, for our Savior Jesus, who though he was rich in that most ultimate sense, 
He became poor so that we might be rich in the true sense of that word. We thank you for these things. We thank you for this meal that represents to us all of those true riches that are ours now and that are stored up and laid away for us in heaven. Let us, let us hear Jesus' words to the church in Revelation. That though we are poor, yet we are rich. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.